the face of the planet is a man-made catastrophe. We need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that connection to how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go, why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they? Hey, this is Julia Piper, and I'm the host of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. And this is episode six in our monthly Path to Zero series, sponsored by the public policy think tank Third Way. If you hear some noises and some loud breathing, that's because I'm walking, which only seemed appropriate because this is our episode on decarbonizing transportation. And I'm headed over now to my co-host Brandon Hurlbut's house here in Los Angeles to hear about why he purchased an electric vehicle. Brandon is the former chief of staff of the Department of Energy and a Democrat on our podcast. Shane Skelton, a Republican, is sitting this episode out. In a moment, you'll also hear from Michigan Congresswoman Debbie Dingell about what it will take to reboot the American automotive industry and make it greener and cleaner coming out of the economic downturn caused by coronavirus. And in the latter half of the show, you'll hear from James Chen, Vice President of Public Policy at Rivian, a new American electric vehicle manufacturer that has captured the public as well as investors' attention with its snazzy all-electric pickup truck and SUV. Transportation is currently the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, and the vast majority of transportation emissions come from road transport. That means the market trajectory for EVs will have a direct impact on whether or not the world can achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The science-based target that experts say the United States and the rest of the world must hit in order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And with that, I'm going to stop talking, put on my mask, pick up the pace, and head over to Brandon's. Brandon, what's up? Wow, look at you. Official. I know. We're recording. <laughs> All right, into the garage we go. All right, we're here in Brandon Hurlbut's garage. I actually didn't realize that you had two different EVs. You have the Bolt from GM and the Nissan Leaf. Why do you have two of them? We had two Leafs in the beginning, and then my wife told one of them, so we upgraded <laughs> the second one to uh, a Bolt. But this Leaf is a 2013 model, so it's essentially like the iPhone 1. Uh, and then the Bolt is like a, a modern iPhone. <laughs> it's like a very modern car. So you went for the Leaf, which, you know, I don't even know what, how many of those are selling these days, but, but why go for a Leaf? They are shorter range than other options out there these days. When did you guys buy this and, and why that one? 
so we didn't have any cars in DC. And so when we moved to LA uh, in December of 2016, we had to get uh, a car and there wasn't a lot of choices in late 2016. You basically had an expensive Tesla because there was no Model 3. So you either had like a Model S or a Leaf. And um, there was great prices on used uh, Leafs. So we got a great deal. We got two of them for 13000 total between the two cars. That's crazy. $13,000 for two cars? Yeah. I mean, we've put zero money into them. There's no maintenance. There's no oil changes. There's nothing. It's, I mean, as long as the brakes are good and the tires are full of air and the windshield wiper fluid is there, that's like, that's it. Nothing else can go wrong. And so why did you upgrade to the Bolt? Like, what did you like about that car? Because you got it a little later, you could have picked something else. Yeah, so the Model 3 was just starting to roll off, and there was, like, a long delay to get, to get, to get them. Um, and so, and we don't drive a ton. Uh, so, um, you know, this was a good price point for us, and it had the, the increased range, the 250-mile range. So... Um, that allows us to do more road trips when we want to go up to like Santa Barbara or Big Sur. It makes it really easy. Um, I think people overestimate like how far they really drive. Like this is like the thing, like, uh, with a 90 mile an hour or 90 mile, uh, leaf, you could basically get around the stuff you want to do. Now a trip would be a little bit harder. So what about actually driving them? Like everyone talks about the EV zip and all that, like it kind of sounds a little cheesy. Like, is it a for real feeling that you like enjoy driving these? What I think people don't realize is it's a better machine in every aspect. It is faster. Like driving, like you hit the gas, it's not the gas pedal, you hit the pedal. And like, I mean, it has, when I've taken people that have never driven in an EV and you punch it, they are like, oh my God. Like they like freak out, you know, and it's not even have like the Tesla crazy, you know, thing where like the Mach 1 or whatever he's doing. So um, if you are like on the highway and you need to make like a quick move, you know, you're on the Santa Monica freeway or the 405 and like you can get there faster with an EV than any other car. The handling of the car is better because in a, in a traditional car uh, with the engine, all the weight is up front in the car with an EV, it's a battery and the battery's underneath the car and the weight is evenly distributed. So taking turns and just driving, it handles much better. Um, and then if you just, uh, don't like to deal with, I am not handy. I don't understand, uh, mechanics, all that stuff. The only time I've ever had to take either of these cars and other than my wife totaled, uh, the one leaf, uh, is to put air in the tires. That's it. No oil changes, nothing ever breaks, because there's so many less moving parts. Like a regular car has like 2,000 moving parts, an EV has like 20. Do you hate that, you know, Shane makes fun of you for owning an EV? I think he will get one soon, and then he'll like, just like everything with Shane, like he comes around eventually, right? (laughs) Like, you know, uh, he'll see the light. Uh, It's just a better, even for people that really care about cars, it's just a it's a better vehicle. It's better technology. You know, the price point is getting there on almost all these cars. The battery costs are coming down so dramatically. Um, if you want to use one like we did, like there's those discounts available. Like a lot of people who like EVs want the newest 
Model 3, the newest version of whatever, the Rivian or whatever's coming out. And so there's a good used car market for this now. I would look at like Hertz just went bankrupt, right? Like, <laughs> do they have some EVs that they want to like get rid of? Like th that stuff could be available, right? The used car market for EVs, like they're, you know, you can get some good, good deals. Or do you think there are any legitimate concerns though about owning an EV? Like did Sally, your wife, have any concerns when you first bought these? Did you have to like win her over? Yeah, she didn't know anything about EVs. And I said, you know, we had the discussion about when we were going to buy cars and we moved to LA. Uh, she was like, I said, it just has to be an EV. I don't care. And she was like, well, wait a minute, they're going to be expensive. Uh, how am I going to charge it? You know, what if I get stuck? She had all of those questions. Um, and then when she saw like that we got two cars for $13,000, we could each have a car. Um, and then she didn't have to um, you know, go to gas stations and pay for gas. Like she just, you know, plug it in at home and she saw how easy it is. She's become like a huge evangelist for EV. She tells a lot of her friends. Yeah. We should just quickly note, we're looking at your two cars parked in this, you know, you're in an apartment building. So there are other cars around. What was it like getting this charging in this building? Cause I think one of the legitimate concerns is that, uh, you just plugging in and finding a way to make that happen. I know in my house it'd be a problem. So how did you guys work that out? Yeah, that's definitely um, a barrier because many of these condo associations are just not familiar with it. So we were probably one of the first tenants to say, like, hey, we're going to have EVs. Um, you know, we'd like to um, charge in the garage. And they didn't really know what to do with that. And then when they came up with a process, they initially wanted us to run uh, a line directly to our meter in our unit, which is far from the parking garage. So it would have been like thousands and thousands of dollars just to do the electrical work to have the ability to have the charger. So we worked out a different solution uh, with them where we can just plug into the regular um, outlet, the 120 volt outlet, um, and they can uh, put a little gadget on there for 20 bucks that tells how much electricity uh, we use and charge us for that. Interesting, because there's definitely, you know, some work to be done on educating consumers on how this would exactly fit into their life. Um, the cars themselves, as you said, people really enjoy them, but there's still a bit of work that needs to be done there and probably where companies and policymakers and advocates and all that need to still do a little stepping up and, and continue the effort. Yeah, because the uh, sort of condo owners, they need to make sure it's a safe product, you know, and all that. They just, it's just a plug. And that's what they don't understand. And I think once there's more people asking for it and they learn more about it, they'll understand, like, this isn't really a big deal. <laughs> and there's a way to, like, figure out how to charge for the electricity and it's not going to blow up. <laughs> not blowing up. A plus. That's what we want. <laughs> well, you've sold me, Brandon. Um, since I walked here, can, uh, can I have a ride home? <laughs> you can take a scooter. Oh, While there's lots to love about going electric, plug-in vehicles will be on a bumpy road for the next few years amid the current health and economic crisis. Coronavirus shut down global supply chains, brought manufacturing to a halt, and dealt a major blow to the economy overall. As a result, research firms expect EV sales will take a major hit this year, and the jury's still out on how quickly the market will rebound. Here in the U.S., the EV market was already struggling before coronavirus. 2019 saw plug-in sales decline year over year. Automakers have been slowly but steadily bringing new electric models to market and setting grandiose EV sales targets. But so far, those sales haven't really followed. 
One car maker, Tesla, has been dominating the electric car market in the US and abroad. But that's not enough. The market needs to grow and diversify in order to become truly mainstream. With all that said, many analysts, including the research firm Bloomberg New Energy Finance, believe the long-term prospects for EVs remain strong. Climate goals coupled with local air pollution issues, rapidly decreasing battery costs, vehicle maintenance savings, new vehicle-to-grid applications, and strategic growth opportunities are driving the EV market forward. That means the challenge is more about getting the industry from A to B, from now to 2040, when Bloomberg believes that EVs will make up nearly 60% of all new passenger car sales. Policy will play a critical role in what happens next for the EV market, one way or another which will also affect how rapidly the transportation system decarbonizes, or doesn't. The EV outlook could also have a major impact on the U.S. economy. Boosting government investment in clean transportation, as well as other green technologies, is being championed by advocates and several lawmakers as a way to put Americans back to work and build out of the coronavirus downturn. Last week, I got on a Zoom call with Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, representative for Michigan's 12th Congressional District. I asked her how she's thinking about vehicle electrification in the context of meeting U.S. environmental goals, while also coping with immediate pressures from COVID-19. Plus, now the added danger of catastrophic flooding in Michigan, which is only expected to get worse with climate change. Here's that conversation. Well, first off, thank you, Congresswoman, for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's really good to be with you. We're here to talk about electric vehicles and the economic recovery and how, you know, electric vehicles fit into that vision. But first, I wanted to ask about the situation on the ground in Michigan right now. I know that there is catastrophic flooding taking place in some parts of it. Obviously, all states in the country are are battling with coronavirus. Could you just give us a give our listeners a sense of what it's like on the ground in Michigan right now and what's on people's minds? You know, Michigan's been one of the hardest hit states in the country after New York and New Jersey. We were for many weeks had the highest number of COVID cases and until last week were the third highest for the number of deaths in the country and we've gone to fourth, but that's nothing to be happy about. And we've had a 10% mortality rate. I've lost more than 30 people. In the last week, I've lost two really close friends. I've lost family members. A lot of people know a lot of people that have been sick or died and it's really hard in Michigan. It's real. People aren't, I mean, we feel the real consequences of COVID. And then coming on top of it, we've had terrible rains the last couple of days. And it wasn't, I mean, we had real downpours. I had lakes almost in front of my house because the rain was so hard. Well, United States, America has let the infrastructure go for too long. We've kicked a can down the road. There was a dam that two years ago was found to be unsafe, and it broke. Uh, And it broke last night, and a second dam has followed in Midland, which is an important city. It's the home of Dow Chemical. It's likely to be under nine feet of water shortly. People have had to evacuate a number of cities and towns in the area, and we are praying for everybody there. And these circumstances make it very difficult to keep the physical distance or to wear a mask or to wash your hands the way that the public health experts have uh, recommended. So this is a very serious situation. We're praying for everybody there. And I know the governor and many state resources 
are being dedicated to try to help the people there and keep them safe. So uh, let's talk about the economic situation and what are the automakers experiencing right now in Michigan? And when they think about building back out, I know it's premature, we're still in the thick of this, but as we think about the future, what do the automakers need, do you think, and how do EVs fit into that vision? Is there a role for them amid everything going on to push into this new area of the economy? Well, I'm very worried about the auto industry. And I would, and I have spent almost every day of the last nine weeks uh, on the phone with the president of the UAW, Rory Gamble, who I've known for three decades, with the auto CEOs and many many people at all three companies that are working on a variety of issues with uh, representatives of the supplier community, uh, CEOs and heads of associations and people that are focused on ensuring that they're going to be okay and they have the liquidity they need and the dealers. And unlike 2008, I think it's absolutely critical that we think of the auto industry as an ecosystem. So I divide this into three categories for where we are with the industry right now. First of all, it's a successful reopening. Last week, some of the suppliers returned to work to prepare for the reopening of the OEMs this week. It's a very slow reopening. GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota opened their plants this week, but with very stringent protocols that these companies worked with the UAW, their workers directly on. So once you get the plants reopened, you had to worry about both the liquidity of the OEMs, but much more so the supplier industry, which by the way, also needs access to PPE equipment. GM, Ford and Chrysler have been making their own uh, but some of the suppliers have had a hard time, especially tier two and T3, tier three, and being able to even purchase what they need. But liquidity has been the second issue. The auto companies have worked, especially with the tier one, to try to ensure that they're able to get loans from banks. And we've all been working with the administration and others to ensure that the supplier community has liquidity. The third piece of this is going to be one of the most critical pieces, which is how do you help ensure demand? Do we need to have some kind of economic stimulus? There's no agreement among the autos about what they think that the answer is, but the American auto industry is still the backbone of the American economy. And if the auto industry doesn't do well, if we lose jobs, it is a cold that quickly I'll use this phrase now, becomes COVID in the industry. And we don't want that to happen. So there is a lot of communication between everybody. And this has to be done in a bipartisan way, not a partisan way, to work with the industry to keep it strong and healthy. So dialing in on the electric vehicle component of this, thinking back to January, which feels like ages ago, you introduced the USA Electrify Forward Act. Uh, tell us a bit about what was in there uh, just to, to start, and then we'll get into how it may factor into a recovery. But first, lay out what you proposed. Well, in order for people to purchase electric vehicles, I'm going to talk about electric vehicles at a higher level. It is the wave of the future. We need to get to a carbon-less society. I've got a bill in there that would get us to zero, net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. But right now, and this was before COVID, many people didn't have confidence in the EV. One, there's a cost differential, which 
has tried to be covered by tax incentives, though there's a cap on the number and that number has not been changed. So that's an issue. But two, there aren't charging stations across the country. And people don't have confidence in the range of the battery on an EV. So what we've got to do is to build out that infrastructure. And people are going to have to have a different mindset also in that they're used to running into a gas station, chilling it in five minutes, not charging a battery for 30 minutes. And people are concerned that when they do need to recharge, they're not going to be able to find a charging station. So what we want is an electric vehicle infrastructure built out across the country. And we need to, and hopefully we'll be get quick charging, supercharger stations as this develops. So that is one area that we have to do. But we also have to aid in the research uh, so that we do develop batteries that have that longer capability, the longer range, which we're getting towards. But we need to instill confidence in Americans that the EV will get them where they want to go and that they will be able to charge them. Right. And I think you also had some pieces in this bill that talk about accelerating domestic manufacturing. It would direct uh, Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow to to look into that. I think you also had pieces around well, charging stations, as you mentioned, and then also giving some funding to the Department of Energy around the advanced manufacturing of, of EVs and other related technologies. Could you just touch on the manufacturing piece? What does the U.S. need to do to become more competitive there? Well, I happen to think that we're at the forefront of innovation and technology. Everybody talks about other countries, but we have the American know-how. And just to give you an example, there is no other country in the world that has the capability that we did when there was a PPE shortage in this country for equipment. Both GM and Ford, within a three-week period, worked with other manufacturers, developed a plan to build ventilators, which has multiple parts. It's those ventilators are as complicated as a vehicle, and people don't realize how complicated a vehicle is. How many different parts of uh, parts are in a vehicle? Many more than the airplane that they're flying up in the sky. But our industry did turn it around, had volunteers that came in from the UAW and are now producing ventilators at two plants. But we need to strengthen manufacturing. One, I don't want to see us offshoring any more jobs. And I think COVID has also shown us the importance of bringing our supply chain back to this country. And people understand what we're talking about now when we say how much we have shipped jobs overseas and shipped the supply chain over there. What we want to do is we need DOE to help subsidize or to help encourage, I'm not going to use the word subsidize, incentivize the development of that technology. It costs money. That's that's a reality that we need for our scientists, our innovators to have access to capital to be able to make, to do the research and the development that we need to, and the applied research that we need to be successful in the electric vehicle space. And we want the Department of Transportation to support the development of electric vehicles. You know, we're going to have to be going through some very significant changes. Recently, the uh, Department of Transportation rolled back the Obama CAFE standards, uh, something I do not agree with. But what we have to do is how do we calculate the energy savings we're going to get from electric vehicles and what the purpose of CAFE was? 
So the Department of Transportation needs to work with the auto industry so that they're incentivizing and encouraging advanced technologies and new technologies that are going to help us get to that carbonless society we all see. And by the way, if we look at what's happened in the last nine weeks and what's happened to our environment, it's a lot cleaner. And that's what we, our ultimate goal is, is to have that. So how do you think you insert electric vehicles into the stimulus, into the recovery? You mentioned that earlier, that we need to talk about rebooting these companies. How does that actually become a part of the conversation and part of ultimately legislation? Because the government has spent a lot already, and there's some concern about spending more. I think we've got to be very careful to ensure that the industry is stable. So I know a lot of people want to immediately rush in and put a lot of environmental regulations in there. And I do think ultimately what we want to do is incentivize, encourage the development of EVs. And that is where we are going for the future. And the autos need to continue to invest in that. General Motors has a very aggressive plan to go to EVs, as does Ford Motor. So we want to ensure that we're continuing to support it. Honestly, right now, I'm worried about liquidity and stabilizing the, financially the state of the industry and protecting jobs. And we have seen one of the things that the industry depends on is fleet sales and both rental companies are on the verge of bankruptcy. And we're gonna have to look at demand side and how we stabilize that and incentivize it. Incentivizing electric vehicles will be part of that, but I think we're gonna find a reluctance on the part of some consumers in the very short term. And I'm talking short term, you know, six months, maybe a year. But then we need to make sure that the autos have the resources that they need. And remember that they've all had liquidity issues. General Motors had a strike in the fall, so the product's already down. Now it's been uh, a a two-month shutdown. The consumer confidence is not there. Fleet sales are going to be impacted. We want jobs to be there. We want to ensure that there are jobs. I'm focused on the very short term for liquidity for these companies. And then we need to get back to ensuring that we are going to a carbonless society and investing in this technology that's going to get us there. You mentioned GM, though, as a quick note, they've been really pushing in the last few weeks their electric vehicle commitment, having several press calls pointing to their Ultium battery technology, which has been interesting to see them put a lot of effort into amid everything else they have going on. I guess just to broaden out on EVs to, to finalize this part of it, why is it important that the U.S. lead on EVs? Why 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 care? 16% of, of consumers, I think, are, are saying they would consider an EV, but a lot of consumers are still worried. So why bother? Why is this an important area for the U.S. Why to lead bother? on? We're going to change that 16% number that you're talking about by developing that electric vehicle infrastructure and building out the range. Then people are going to feel confident in the EV. But the fact of the matter is the internal combustion engine is becoming obsolete. We need to move, move to more innovative technologies. And I will not, we are the birthplace of the American automobile. We are the nation that developed and gave people the ability to be mobile, to travel around. And I will not secede that to China or India or any country in Europe. We are going to stay at the forefront of innovation and technology. And that's why it's so critical to support it. 
Finally, on on the politics of Michigan, it's such a key state in the 2020 election. And this relates to the green movement, because, as you mentioned, a lot of people want to see a green recovery. But there's some real tension between the climate movement and, say, labor groups and how these two camps within the democratic movement can work together. You've talked about bringing creating coalitions and bringing these these groups together. How do you plan to do that? Well, it's one of my focuses. It's something that really matters to me. Prior to COVID, I had was bringing the Green New Deal, the environmentalist community. So Green New Deal hub here, plus the LCV, the Sierra Club, and our DC, we're all going to sit down with the UAW, the steelworkers, the AFT, the AFL-CIO, uh, and a number of machinists, the IBEW, uh, to talk about it, because what we need to do is labor has those same goals, but we got to understand, and it's even more important. Now, I, I, I have two steel plants in, uh, that one's in my district, one borders. Rashida and I kind of share both of these steel plants. One is Great Lake Steel that has many employees on layoff, which many people anticipate will close after the election. And last week, as we were writing a letter about a request for Eagle, who's our environmental group in the state, not to give a permit to AK Steel, AK Steel received a warning, a war notice, and they're eliminating 300 jobs. You know, a lot of, it's not either or, but for it not to be either or, and for people to work together so that we share that same goal of going to a carbonless society, but we're protecting people's jobs and how do we work together to get the right technology that allows those plants to continue to deliver. Some of the members of the environmental community need to understand that they're really people that are scared about their jobs and they were scared about their jobs before COVID. We got to work together so that we are protecting jobs, that those jobs go from producing the in internal combustion engine to producing those electric vehicles of the future that we are going to create green jobs. But I want people to talk to each other and I want to build a coalition. I don't want people fighting at each other and not realizing they have far more in common. Finally, do you think Democrats will be able to win big in Michigan in 2020? I am somebody who says do not. It's too early to call. I said four years ago that President Trump could win Michigan and everybody thought I was crazy including a lot of Republicans, and it's a lifetime between now and November. And the biggest thing I worry about is indifference. People thinking that their vote doesn't matter. Every vote matters. Democracy matters. And I encourage everyone, no matter how you're going to vote, to participate in your government, because that is what will determine your future. Congresswoman, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Rivian's mission is to keep the world adventurous. The electric vehicle manufacturer has been around since 2009. But rather than follow the Tesla model of announcing a bold vision and big plans and raising money to fulfill it, Rivian's founder, RJ Scarringe, decided to keep a low profile, quietly raising money and staying effectively in stealth mode for nearly a decade. Rivian didn't officially launch until the 2018 LA Auto Show, when the company unveiled its R1T all-electric truck and the R1S all-electric SUV. The headline was that these weren't prototypes to be produced in five or six years. These were, and are, Rivian's production vehicles. Vehicles the company pledged to bring to market by the end of 2020 for a price tag starting around $70,000. 
Rivian rocked the auto market with its high-performance, long-range, large-format electric vehicles, and big investor dollars followed. Rivian raised around $3 billion in a single year last year from major players, including Amazon, Ford, and T. Rowe Price. It's easy to get caught up in the intrigue of Rivian's technology and funding numbers. But from a climate perspective, the most important question for Rivian is arguably, why build electric trucks in the first place? Are electric adventure vehicles really going to make a dent in decarbonizing the global transportation system? I put that question and others to James Chen, who also goes by Jim, Rivian's vice president of public policy. We round out our episode on EVs with that interview. Why trucks? It's a great question. The reason being, if you look at the emissions profile of the light duty fleet out there, it's not the commuter cars, it's not the smaller vehicles that are really the the largest polluters, it's trucks and SUVs. And trucks and SUVs represent something like 60 to 65% of all new vehicle sales in the United States. So these are vehicles that are clearly more than half of the US fleet, they are the largest emitters, and if we can develop a compelling all-electric truck and an all-electric SUV, every one of the Rivians that we sell, every R1T and R1S that we sell supplants a emission-spewing large pickup truck or a large SUV and helps make the fleet overall cleaner. Uh, and let's face it, Americans love their trucks, you know, because of the utility. So it's not just about putting out an electric truck or an SUV. It's putting out one that really speaks to the needs, the desires, the passions of the American public. So the R1T is a pickup truck. You know, it's, you know, seats five adults. It has a range of up to 400 miles, zero to 60 time in as little as three seconds. I mean, you can outrun a Porsche 911 in a pickup truck, which is crazy, but it shows the, the value of electric drive, the efficiency and the responsiveness of electric drive. We put a motor at every one of those four wheels to get incredible traction control and just vehicle control altogether. And then, of course, all the amenities you would expect in a uh, a pickup truck, a towing capability of 11,000 pounds, a payload capacity in the truck bed itself of 1,700 pounds. Uh, All these things together to make a very compelling vehicle. And by the way, the battery, the motors, Um, the storage that's all available in there, it's all sealed, which means you can wade in up to three feet of water in that truck and not have to worry about a snorkel or, you know, worrying about getting anything uh, wet. The truck simply can handle that type of adventure, that type of operation. You mentioned the U.S. driver, uh, you know, they love their trucks, but how much does the U.S. market really matter when it comes to electric vehicles and electrification globally from an emissions perspective again? I mean, and a market one, right? There's a lot of consumers now in China and, and China's been pushing enormously on electric vehicles. So how are you thinking about those other markets and how important are they in this electrification transition? Yeah, so obviously Rivian is not going to stop with a single pickup truck or a single SUV. First on the existing lineup, the R1S, it's a large uh, SUV uh, about the size of a, of a Land Rover, a Range Rover. Okay, it can seat up to seven adults. It's going to also have a range of up to 400 miles, slightly lower towing capacity because, you know, you're, you're adding more uh, individuals, more passenger capability, but all the same features. So... Uh, the mileage, the, uh, the motors at the wheels, um, you know, still a high level of towing capability. 
uh, hauling capability, gear storage inside the vehicle, as well as the front trunk, uh, is all going to be class leading. And I think the SUV uh, done with the right amenities, the, the glass roof, leather seating, um, the, the amenities that people expect, I think something like this would go very well uh, in China and other world markets. Uh, so Arivian is definitely looking not just at the U.S., but we do have plans to make these vehicles worldwide vehicles. Then on top of that, you know, we will be moving on to other segments as well, a slightly smaller SUV that RJ has already announced and other vehicles in our lineup, uh, the product plans, of course, which are currently being kept uh, under wraps until we actually develop and reveal those. Uh, the other piece of this, I think, from a worldwide uh, perspective, and actually ties back to your question about uh, climate change. And what's really exciting is the partnership that we have with Amazon.com. Uh, Amazon, of course, is one of our earlier investors. They led around uh, 700 million in financing for Rivian. But in addition to that, what led to that and what was really impressive to Amazon was the technology, the skateboard platform that underpins the R1T and the R1S. Uh, they really liked it, and as a result, we developed a delivery van, an all-electric delivery van on that platform, and we entered into a contract with Amazon to provide them 100,000 of those vehicles starting in 20, late 2021, late next year, uh, and delivering all 100,000 by 2030 uh, in the space of less than 10 years. So... We're literally going to be building tens of thousands of Amazon Prime delivery vans uh, to that company uh, over the next nine years. What does that mean? That that from a climate impact, every one of those trucks operating on the road will take the equivalent of 15 passenger cars emissions off the road. And if you think about it, it simply makes sense. These these trucks are there are the ones that are being run every day. If you think about now, Amazon delivery. Uh, prime delivery, uh, or even just standard home delivery. You see these trucks, at least in my neighborhood, I see these trucks going down my block uh, two or three times a day. Uh, these trucks are putting a couple hundred miles uh, every day on a route multiplied by the number of Amazon depots out there. This will have a significant impact climate. Not only that, uh, we definitely, Amazon definitely has plans to deploy these vehicles worldwide. So imagine as Amazon grows its all up fleet, more and more of these trucks are planning uh, the most inefficient, the most polluting, the most heavily traveled routes, uh, the, the most mileage. I mean, talk about a huge impact. This type of transition will have uh, a huge implications in a positive way to climate change, to business, to sustainability, all the positives that go along with, with shipping to electric drivers. Yeah. And and local air pollution. I know you mentioned pollution, but just to put a finer point on that amid coronavirus, when we're all ordering so much online, uh, pollution levels have gone down. But studies have shown, you know, not by that much because we still are getting our goods uh, shipped over from overseas and then ultimately trucked around our cities to bring them to our doorsteps. So uh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that, yeah, I did see that study. And, and you're right. It wasn't so much the passenger cars and in particularly in your hometown of LA, turns out it was all the transport that was going on. So uh, that's the really exciting thing about Rivian. This is not just 
a business that looks at a business to consumer type of approach. This is also a business to business type of approach. Amazon is the most illustrative example of that. You know, others have approached us about utilizing our skateboard design in theirs, and we're open to having discussions with any of those players that want to talk about what we can do in that arena. So this is this is where we think the real impact can can have exponential effect in a positive way. And by the way, not just climate change, but as you referenced, Julia, traditional pollutants as well, carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, NOx, uh, particulate matter. And, and these pollutants, they don't respect borders. They don't respect um, boundaries. Uh, and unfortunately, with, with respiratory diseases like COVID-19 out there, um, increased air pollution tends to concentrate in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the economically disadvantaged areas of the country. You know, folks who live near these throughways, near major thoroughfares. Uh, and by switching to electric, this is a benefit that can help all of these populations, particularly our most vulnerable, underscored by the fact that we're facing a global pandemic that is, in fact, a respiratory disease. So what do you think are the top factors that are holding EVs back? We talked about fleets, and they have a bit of a different set of you know, they have a different calculus they're doing around money savings, efficiency. So maybe let's focus on consumers. What is stopping the mass adoption? Is it infrastructure, do you think? Is it familiarity with the technology itself? Is it the pricing? How do you chalk that up? Yeah, I don't think it's any one factor. I think it's a number of those factors. So uh, certainly as battery prices have come down, we are certainly seeing the vehicle price is getting more and more attractive. And people are like, well, yeah, but you guys are talking about a $69,000 price tag for your mid-range, your 300-mile range R1T. That's still up there. And you know what? You're right. That's up there. But this is what I like to tell people. But think about it. Back in 2010, um, about 10 years ago, the Tesla Roadster came out. That was a two-seat sports car, got 250 miles of range, went zero to 60 in six seconds, was really cool. Actually, it might have been a little less than six seconds, but it was a two-seater, and it didn't have much room or much utility. And by the way, the price tag on that vehicle was $130,000, okay? Now, we're looking at a pickup truck that has the same footprint as the Ford F-150 that has all the features I mentioned earlier in this uh, in this discussion about towing, hauling, uh, five adult seating capability, and performance, and we're talking about a truck that is half the price of what that Tesla Roadster was, with way more utility, way more size, way more battery efficiency. So as the battery costs start coming down, that'll certainly help on the price side. And by the way, I priced out, uh, and not to pick on Ford, but they are the number one selling pickup truck in the market, the Ford F-150. I priced out a Ford F-150 that had all the features of a Rivian R1T mid-range uh, truck. And I ended up with a $75,000 Ford F-150 Platinum Edition. So we're actually getting, we're at or getting to price parity. And this is before you ever do any, you know, refueling, gasoline or oil changes. So, um, so we're getting there. So costs, you mentioned costs is certainly an issue. You mentioned charging infrastructure. That's the other piece of this. Charging infrastructure. A lot of people call it chicken and egg, you know, which should come first. You need both. You need the compelling vehicles and you need the charging of the structure so people are assured of being able to charge where they need to. But I think we also need to shift how we think about charging. This is not going to be, at least in the, in the immediate term, like a gas station where you go in and you pump 
gas for five minutes and you're off and you're off again with a full tank of gas. So we have to look at charging in a different way. And the good news is that there are actually better and more compelling ways to quote unquote refill your electric vehicle. You can do this at home overnight when rates are low. Uh, and you can wake up every morning never having to visit a gas station again for your daily commute because you know you can charge up at home. Uh, it's looking at the public charging infrastructure that's out there. And I think there are so many companies that, that are doing a good job. Uh, ChargePoint, Electrify America, EVgo, GreenLots, just to name a few. They're all putting in charging infrastructure at places where we need it. Uh, workplace charging, where you go in and, and spend some time in an office, being able to plug in and charge up a little bit there. Although in these days of COVID-19 and teleworking, maybe we don't need to, to visit the office as much. Uh, but Rivian is also looking at what it can do to help support charging and charging infrastructure. We're not yet ready to reveal what we're going to be doing in that area, but we're also looking at supplementing a lot of what's going on out there with charge points of the world uh, to help with charging. So, and I, and, I would, and I mentioned the vehicles themselves. I think the vehicles themselves also still have uh, time for maturity, not just in terms of battery and cost, but in the number of manufacturers that are really devoted to electrification. Right now, it's Tesla, it's Rivian, and it's a very, very small handful of others. Um, I don't think that uh, as a matter of public policy, the United States has really gotten behind electrification uh, and EVs, and we need to change that. This, this technology was invented in the United States by several professors who, by the way, uh, won recently the Nobel Prize for development of the lithium-ion technology that is the heart of modern EV vehicles. Um, but if you look at what we're spending as a country, it's it's minuscule. China, you mentioned China. China is spending somewhere along the lines of $60 billion to support a domestic EV industry. We're spending, the last figures I saw was maybe $3 billion. So uh, I don't think the United States from a policy perspective has really gotten behind this. And now, you know, as we look at, at the policy portfolio, you see talk about, you know, trying to charge EVs uh, an extra registration fee because they're not paying into the gas tax, uh, and which, which, by the way, supports our public infrastructure. Okay, there's no question that every road user should pay their fair share. But with the number of EVs in the United States at less than 1%, our infrastructure issues are a larger problem. And we can't scapegoat EV technology uh, and try to push down what is basically the future of transportation. Yeah. I, so that's so interesting about the policy measures, because when you, when you talk about that spending and, and moving to bigger numbers, what exactly would you want the government, I guess we should break it down from federal, state to city, or however you think about it. What do you want these government entities to spend more on when it comes to EVs? I think it, it addresses the exact problems we had talked about earlier in this conversation. I think it's about getting the EVs out there, addressing the price discrepancy for now, uh, and it's also looking at infrastructure. So supporting all of this, one of those uh, big pieces is the uh, federal tax credit. Uh, under the Internal Revenue Code Section 30D. Right now, per, uh, purchasers of a qualified electric vehicle can receive a $7,500 tax credit, but that's a temporary tax uh, credit, and that only lasts up to 200,000 vehicles per EV manufacturer. Okay, so Tesla's already hit that limit. 
Uh, GM has already hit that limit with the Bolt. Nissan is soon going to hit that limit. Okay, 200,000 vehicles per manufacturer is not a whole lot when you consider that the new car market in the United States is 17 million vehicles each year. Okay, and some would say, well, you know, the government shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing these purchases. But, you know, the government is in the business of subsidizing, you know, the oil and gas industry. And we're talking a 100 years of subsidies for a mature industry that runs into the tens tens and tens of billions of dollars. Okay, and this is for the oil and gas industry uh, by comparison, EV you know, subsidies are a fraction of that. I think if we really want to get serious about this, we need to look at incentivizing uh, purchases of these vehicles. We also need to incentivize manufacturing here in the United States. Rivian is very proud of the fact that we purchased the old Mitsubishi factory in Normal, Illinois, and we're bringing that up to produce our vehicles. This is where the battery packs, the vehicles, uh, everything is going to be built, and we're bringing in literally thousands of jobs to the United States at a plant that shut down not... I want to say four or five years ago, uh, in an area of the country, the Midwest, that that you know has uh, has seen some hard times economically. Uh, we're proud of the fact that we're bringing that back into the United States. Uh, so supporting domestic manufacturing is another way. Uh, third way, charging infrastructure. We talked about uh, you know tax incentives. There's actually a tax incentive under IRC 30C that supports the charging infrastructure. Uh, that again is also a temporary one that has to be renewed and that should be renewed. So there's a number of signals that the federal government can absolutely send that this technology is important. And by the way, this is not about picking winner, winners and losers. This is not saying to one company, we're gonna support you versus another company. This is about supporting an entire technology that represents the future of transportation. And so there's room for the government to do something about this in a big way. And in the meantime, not trying to uh, not trying to discourage this. So many, many states now are starting to put in EV fees because of this whole, uh, what I call the red herring of the gas tax uh, inequity. Okay, there will come a time and place for EVs when they get to a substantial number of the fleet to be able to start paying into that. Uh, to, to try to discourage uh, or uh, this this fledgling technology now is not the right time. And, it- and well, separate from EVs, the federal fuel economy regulations on gasoline cars are making those cars cleaner and consume less gas, which means there's less uh, revenue from the gas tax that way. Meanwhile, uh, recently, there's been some new data coming out showing that personal travel is down amid coronavirus, which is lowering gas consumption even further, meaning fewer gallons of gas to tax. So I believe the legislation funding the Highway Trust Fund is set to expire this September. So surely there will be more discussion of EV fees and other ways to pay for infrastructure more broadly. Uh, For now, though, I want to go back to the manufacturing point and put this in the context of coronavirus. Uh, There have been calls for a green stimulus and pushing further into green technology areas to boost the U.S. economy. Uh, You work on policy, you know, for this up and coming uh, EV company, Rivian. So based on your read, have you heard of this concept getting legitimate traction beyond just think pieces, the idea of a green stimulus? And and would EVs be a part of that? I I have. And and unfortunately, I've also heard this being turned into a... um, um, an R versus D type of issue, and it doesn't need to be that. This is there's you know plenty of policy reasons on both sides for this to be a bipartisan effort. You know, from an economic standpoint, certainly encouraging manufacture. 
I know there's a proposal by representatives here out of California, for example, to help uh, encourage domestic manufacturing. Uh, I think something like that is the right idea. Obviously, the devil's in the details, and we'll have to figure out where all that goes. But um, her ideas have certainly uh, gained our attention and something that uh, we are engaging with her office on. I'm always on the lookout for other options, uh, always open to talking to others about this. This is something from a policy perspective we're pushing as well. I uh, want to give a shout out to our local representative in Normal, Illinois, uh, Representative Darren LaHood, who has been incredibly supportive. He and his staff has certainly uh, met with them a number of times talking about concepts on a policy side of how we can support manufacturing that's, that's coming back to the Midwest and how we can expand on that. So it sounds like there may be some new opportunities for manufacturing EVs. There may be some new policy support coming out of the coronavirus crisis. But are you also concerned that the business could take a hit? Because when the R1T and the R1S were announced, Rivian said it was planning to start production in late 2020. So where does that timeline stand? Also, what's your outlook on consumer demand? Do you think Rivian could take a financial hit if consumers are slow to adopt coming out of this economic downturn? Yeah, so um, the coronavirus has been an interesting test for Rivian, that's for sure. Uh, I think we were better positioned than most to be able to weather some of this storm because we were not going to count on being in a cash flow situation until we got to start a production. So we were already looking at a spend without incoming cash. Uh, that all said, uh, you know, the delay certainly has impacted us. We already, RJ's already announced a slight delay in the, uh, in the SOP. Uh, heading into start of production. We've had to push that off a little bit, uh, but we pushed it off by a few months. Uh, so we're looking at early 2021. But at the end of the day, you know, what I really liked about this company, it's, it's not just about the products and the vehicles. It's about the broader mission of sustainability. And it's also about taking care of our people. Uh, and that's been super important. So during the whole coronavirus, as it started ramping up in March, we were already looking at uh, social distancing, uh, six feet buffers between folks in the office. And then eventually we made the decision that we were going to go ahead and, and promote telework as much as possible. In fact, even before the governors of California uh, and Michigan planned to shut down facilities, we were already in a uh, phase down where we were encouraging people to work from home. Uh, and by the time those announcements were made, we were already shutting down our facilities. Uh, it has caused some hardship for us, but uh, as RJ has said, uh, our talent, our people are most are our most important asset, uh, and we were going to protect them. So, great example of this uh, for the factory. You know, we had roughly 300 folks, uh, direct employees, working at that uh, facility during the coronavirus shutdown. We were down to 10. Now, a lot of these are jobs are, are wage earner jobs that cannot be done remotely or uh, from home. They have to be done at the facility. Regardless, we committed to paying those employees as if they were working a standard 40-hour work week, uh, regardless of whether uh, they were uh, part of the skeletal crew that was there or they were sitting at home because they simply couldn't come in. Uh, and not only do we commit to pay them, uh, we at first in March committed to pay them until uh, April. And then when coronavirus looked like it was going to create a longer stay-at-home requirements, we extended that to May, and then eventually we extended it into June. So every one of our workers, there's been no salary cuts, there's been no uh, layoffs, there have been no uh, furloughs. 
Uh, we have committed to pay our folks all the way through June when we expect lockdown to start uh, lifting. In fact, it already has. We're slowly increasing the number of folks, but of course, putting in all the appropriate precautions, uh, temperature checks, PPE, uh, sanitizer, in-depth cleanings, all the stuff that are conforming to CDC guidelines. So to close us out here, tell me why you think the future looks bright for electric vehicles, assuming that you do. Because there's Tesla that's been successful, but even the established automakers haven't totally figured out how to sell EVs. They've made some great ones, but the sales haven't necessarily followed. Then there are several young EV startups, ones that have grown exponentially. They've raised lots of of money, but then largely faded. And not just in the U.S., but internationally. So do you think people can be confident that this business model works, that, that auto companies can grow in the EV space and that these new companies can become profitable and make the idea of an electrified transportation system really a reality? Well, I would argue that it has, uh, that the, 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 the promise of profitability is showing itself. And I think Tesla's a great example. So Tesla been around th- since 2008, but uh, and Elon's master plan always had been to uh, develop that high-end sports car with the capabilities to show people the uh, promise of electric drive and then to take all the funding from that, roll it into the next vehicle, which was a slightly lower price, still low volume, roll that into a, a mass market vehicle and eventually get to profitability. And if you look at the financial statements of Tesla, they've hit profitability for several quarters. So I think it certainly is possible. Uh, I think when you look at uh, companies like Tesla, like Rivian now, what we're doing is we're investing for the future. Uh, You're not going to see a company turn an immediate profit. Uh, I mean, the automotive industry is one of the toughest to get into. Uh, Arguably, only one one company has done it uh, successfully or or semi-successfully. Uh, since the turn of the century, and that is Tesla. Rivian, certainly, we certainly believe we have the right approach. We have the right product. Uh, We have the right mix of not only a business-to-consumer, but a business-to-business business approach that can help uh, move us forward. So I think what what you're seeing is, and the reason you haven't seen this, is because there's not a whole lot of players that really have tried this uh, in a fulsome way, have not really put together the right leadership team, the right technology, the right funding mechanisms, um, the right business plan to get this all going uh, and have a place to build it. I think Rivian has those pieces. And if you look at what we've got between our leadership, uh, the support we've gotten from investors like Amazon, like Ford, uh, like T. Rowe Price, uh, and then you look at the technology we have, which is incredibly compelling, and the fact that we've got this all being built in a uh, an established factory in normal Illinois, I think we all have the pieces to get there. So I think it's a bit of a red herring to say, well, nobody else has done it before. I think Tesla has shown that there is a way to get this. They're, they're almost there. And I think all the pieces that are necessary for someone like Arivian to, to do this are falling into place and not falling into place out of fate, but the hard work and the vision of RJ Scringe and the team that he's built. So uh, parting thoughts are, you know, Rivian is just an amazing company because of its mission, its uh, its its focus, its vision, and its dedication not only to sustainability but to its people as well. So, really looking forward to uh, getting to SOP and uh, having others share our journey with us. Super. Well, we will all be watching very closely uh, to see uh, your next moves. Really appreciate you speaking with me. 
Yeah, no problem. Really enjoyed uh, being here today and having a chance to have this conversation. Really appreciate it, Julia. And we've come to the end of this episode in our Path to Zero series brought to you by Third Way. For more info on Third Way's energy and climate work, visit thirdway.org. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe to Political Climate. I'll be back with my co-hosts for a new episode next week.